passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. How does God bring transformation in your life? How does God bring transformation in our lives? I'm not just talking about transformation as a, as a journey from not being a Christian into becoming a Christian, although that's certainly part of it. How does God bring about spiritual growth in your life? What circumstances are there in your life that God uses to bring growth, to draw you closer to Him? I think at times it's often a realization of God's greatness a realization of God's goodness. I can think of a time several years ago when I was in the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota. I was doing a, a, some camping, and uh, there was one night, it was particularly clear, cloudless, and I looked up at the night sky and had to look away because of how many stars were shining down on me. I looked down, and I looked out at the light, or excuse me, the, the stars as they were on the water, and it, it was just crystal clear, still, and I was blown away by the greatness of the God who formed each and every one of those stars and knows each and every one of them by name. Sometimes transformation can come from a place of recognizing God's greatness. At other times, it can come through the witness of a friend or a family member. Uh, A couple summer, not a couple summers ago, a, a while back, I served as an interim youth pastor at a church during the summer, and, and I remember uh, the one uh, requirement, if you will, that I had from this job is that I would be mentored by the senior pastor of this church. And, and he said, of course, I'd love to do that. And so we would meet each and every week, and I was just blown away by how his life lined up with what he professed every single Sunday. The, the life and the testimony of the way that this man lived was a reminder to me of God's goodness of God's greatness, and it ultimately pointed me to Him. It was another form of transformation because of my circumstances. Still, in other times in my life, I can point to growth that comes through moments of despair, moments when I feel uh, far from God or distant from God, like God isn't really there, that God isn't present in my life, and, and I'm just going through hard times. And I can point to a handful of times that fit into that category. Sometimes growth can come through despair, through hard times and through suffering. And if you've been a Christian for any season of time at all, perhaps you can recognize times in your life that you can point to to moments where you recognize God's greatness. You can point to moments where you can look to the the witness of a family member or a friend or where you have grown in your own despair closer to God. That God has used these different circumstances and others to bring transformation in your life. But what about the times when you are stubborn? The times where you are hard-hearted. The times where you want nothing to do with God. Where you intentionally ignore Him. When you thumb your nose up at Him. How on earth can God break through to your cold heart when your heart feels nothing at all? And again, maybe you've experienced that. If I'm being honest, I've experienced that in the past. Maybe you're experiencing that right 
now where you know what God's word says. You know what God is calling you to do. You know what God desires for your life and it makes no difference whatsoever. How does God bring transformation to people like that? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38 is a very graphic text. It is one of the most embarrassing moments uh, of history for the people of God. You might be surprised when we go through this text. Why on earth is this text in the Bible? The thing about the Bible is that it never pulls any punches. It never tries to paint God's people uh, in a light better than they actually are. And so the reason why this is in the Bible is because it's crucial for us to understand how God can use someone like Judah for good. How God can take someone like Judah and turn him into the forerunner of the Messiah. This morning we're going to be as mild as we possibly can. Uh, But just to be forewarned this morning, this is a story that is about running from God. And because it is a story about running from God, it is about marrying into the wrong families. It's about domestic abuse. It's about illicit relationships. It's about murderous hate. It's about deceit and superstition. And it's ultimately about the lengths that God goes to in order to bring transformation to the lives of his people. You see, this morning's text is a warning. It's a warning for us this morning because God is fully committed to his people's repentance. God is fully and utterly committed to your repentance and your transformation if you are one of his children, even when you are not committed to your transformation, to your repentance. If you are a Christian, and you are straying from God, if you are ignoring his commands, if you're ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit, this passage says, be very careful. Because God will go through and God will go to whatever lengths necessary to fulfill his purposes in your life. And even when they are painful in your life, does this remain true? Beware. Because God is committed to you, whether you like it or not, whether you are committed to him or not. God will do whatever it takes to break into your life, to break through your life, to open your eyes. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. There's a promise found in the beginning of Philippians, that God, when he, begins, when he begins a work in our lives, he will bring it to completion. He will finish the project in your life. And ultimately that takes place in the final days as we stand before God's throne. But it's also true right now that God, if he has begun a work in you, will bring it to fruition, will bring it to completion in your life. And in Genesis 36, that's exact, excuse me, Genesis 38, that's exactly what we see happen to Judah. Judah is a man who doesn't care about God, but God cares about him. No matter how much Judah wants to get away from God, God will not let him go. 
And if you are God's child today, God will not let you go. No matter how far you run, no matter how far you stray, no matter how often you turn your back on him, God will not let you go. See, last week we looked at Genesis 37 and the life of Joseph and his brothers. And we saw that God can use and God does use the good in our lives as well as the bad to bring about his purposes in our lives. And that was true in Joseph's life. It was true when Joseph was thrown into the pit and sold into slavery. And today it is true in Judah's life when he runs from God. That is true in Judah's life when he is abusive to his daughter-in-law. It is true in Judah's life when he is hypocritical. It is true in Judah's life when, God, when, when he gets his own daughter-in-law pregnant. God is committed to us, to his people. And God can and does use the ugly moments. He uses our sin. He uses our hard-heartedness. And he uses all of those things to bring about change in our lives. You might be saying, well, how on earth does he do that? Let's jump into this text and see just how God is at work in the life of Judah and ultimately how he's oftentimes at work in our own lives as well. So Genesis chapter 38, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the first five verses here. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. This text begins... It's packed with all of these different examples of the ways that Judah has just turned his back on God. So this takes place immediately after Genesis chapter 37. Judah has packed his bags. He has left his family at Hebron. It's right after he has sold his brother into slavery. And he sees his dad as just stuck in this cycle of mourning. And Judah has had enough. And you think of all the things that Judah had to experience, you you begin to say, well, can you really blame him? Can you really blame Judah for just giving up? He was never loved by his dad. He was the fourth son of an unloved wife. And that lack of love between his mother and his father certainly was felt by Judah. He had seen his brothers commit incest, murder, and rape. And he was guilty of these things as well. He had sold his own brother into slavery, and his dad did not care a lick about him or his other brothers besides Joseph. Judah sees it is time for a fresh start. It's time to go out on his own, and so he moves to Chezib, which is this Canaanite city, and he gets on Craigslist, if you will, and begins looking for different roommates, and he finds one. His name's Hira. And what seems like the start of a really bad B-level movie uh, about two buddies in their 20s who are single. Judah is the, the stereotypical millennial in his 20s. He moves out of his parents' house finally, and he moves onto the couch of a friend, his friend Hira. I imagine that they are irresponsible together. They are foolish together. They don't care about what happens to them. They don't care about the future. They only live in the moment, and it's filled with alcohol, and it's filled with women. 
You see, that's the problem with a fresh start. It's a problem for the fresh start for Judah. He's not just leaving his family. He's leaving behind his God. This is very clear in these verses that Judah has abandoned not just his family, but he's also abandoned God. Notice what takes place in these five verses. First, he, lo- he leaves his family because he, he was n- wants nothing to do with them. He wants nothing to do with the promised family, and so he just packs his bags and leaves. He's a lot like his uncle Esau. He despises the promise and wants nothing to do with it. Second, not only that, but he abandons God because he assimilates into the Canaanite culture. This happens when he's cash- crashing on Hiram's couch. This is a man who is called to be set apart for the glory of God and instead decides that he's going to move in with a Canaanite and become best friends with him, become a pagan just like everyone else. Third, he goes a step further and and actually marries a Canaanite. Abraham, his great-grandfather, had gone to extreme lengths to prevent that from happening for his son Isaac. Isaac had gone through great lengths to make sure that that didn't happen for his son, Jacob. They had prohibited marrying Canaanites, and yet Judah goes ahead and does that. Again, he's exactly like his uncle Esau. Not only that, but if you look at verse 2, you just see this uncontrollable lust coming from Judah. Very, very romantic guy. Listen to verse 2 again. There... Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Very, very romantic guy. And this language of taking is is far from the relationship that we see between Abraham and Sarah, that we see between Isaac and Rebekah, that we see between Jacob and Rachel. And this language of taking what he sees and what he wants brings back memories of Genesis chapter 3, when Eve sees the fruits. And she wants it. She lusts after it. And so she just takes it. Same thing with Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 12. He sees Sarah. He lusts after her. He wants her. And so he takes her. Same thing with Shechem in Genesis chapter 34. Shechem sees Dinah. And he wants her. And so he takes her. Judah is exactly like all of these other examples of this, this wickedness, this un- inability to con- control his wickedness in his heart. See, Judah is content with his new life. He's content with his new life among his new people. He has three children that are half pagan, and I can just about guarantee you that they are raised as pagans, not knowing anything about God. Judah has turned his back on God, wants nothing to do with God, a complete afterthought to Judah. Let's continue in verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went to his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. He feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Somewhere in between verses 5 and 6, about 15 or more years pass. 
Judah, this man, has been living far from God for well over a decade and a half. By the end of the the chapter, by the end of Genesis chapter 38, it'll be over 20 years that Judah has been living on his own, thumbing his nose up to God. And the way he's living is caught by his sons, and they begin to live in the exact same way. The text tells us that Ur, his firstborn, uh, which coincidentally, that name Ur, it's, it's just backwards for wicked. So, so we know what kind of person he is here. He's a wicked man. We don't know why he's considered wicked, but we know that he's wicked enough to be put to death. This is the first time in the book of Genesis since Sodom and Gomorrah that anyone is put to death for their wickedness. And after he dies, Tamar, his wife, is left a widow. Now, it was a custom in those days for brothers-in-law to marry and to provide for their deceased brother's spouse. They would provide offspring for them, and these offspring would legally be counted as their brother's offspring. There were really two reasons for this. The first reason was to honor the memory of the deceased, to give them children who could, re- could reflect them and could live as, as their offspring. And so it was a way to honor the memory of his dead brother, Ur. But second, and just as important, it was a way to provide for this widow. In that cultural context, women who had been married and were now widowed, who didn't have any children, were some of the most vulnerable, some of the most oppressed some of the worst situations that you could ever experience as a person. And that's where Tamar is found. But notice what Judah does. Judah, in his wickedness, doesn't say, okay, Onan, go marry Tamar. Do what you're supposed to do to honor your brother. Notice what it says in verse 8. I'm going to read this once more. Then Judah said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Notice that he doesn't say go marry. Don't go marry Tamar. Just just go live with her for a while. Just go cohabitate with her and, and just give me some descendants. I don't really care what happens to her. I'm only caring about myself. I'm only caring about your brother. It's despicable. This man, Judah, decides he's going to take care of himself. He's going to take care of his son, but he's going to do nothing to take care of this very vulnerable woman. And of course, we see that Onan is just as bad. He's in a unique position here. Onan is in a position where his brother is dead, and he's the second born. And with his brother being dead, he has a chance for a bigger inheritance. He has a chance to make more in his life, and he will lose that inheritance if Tamar has a son for Ur. And as the text tells us very graphically, he makes sure that that doesn't happen. But here's the the really wicked thing. He could have said no. He could have said no to his dad. could have said no to Tamar, said, no, I'm not going to do that. It was frowned upon in those days, but it was completely permissible. And yet he decides to lie with Tamar over and over and over. That's what the text means when it says whenever. This is a a repeated offense here by Onan. It shows us that this man is just abusing her. He's using her for his own gain, his own pleasure. Judah's son Onan is just like his dad. Onan is just like Judah. He only cares about himself. He doesn't care about the vulnerable. He doesn't care about the consequences of what are happening. It's disgusting. And so just like Ur, God puts Onan to death. 
Now, Judah had another son. He had a son, Shelah. But he doesn't give Shelah to Tamar because he thinks that Shelah will be killed as well by Tamar. He thinks that Tamar is tainted, that she's, she's poison to this family. She's bad luck to this family. Now, maybe he's right. Maybe Shelah is too young. That's why he says, you know, I'll just wait for a little bit and I'll give you Shayla at a later point. But the text points out that he blames Tamar for the son's death. This is a man who's conspired to murder his brother. This is a man who sold his brother. This is a man who's turned his back on God. This is the man who shacks up with the first Canaanite he finds and he blames Tamar for everything that's wrong in his life. Judah could not be more wrong. In fact, Judah is far from a good guy. Judah is perhaps the worst of Abraham's descendants that we've ever seen to this point. Judah is far from God. He is selfish. He is worldly. He is abusive. He is superstitious. He is deceitful. All in all, he's not what you would think of when you think of someone who is God's child. And after Onan dies, the responsibility to take care of Tamar, to take care of his daughter-in-law, lies with Judah. And what does Judah do? Judah sends her back to her father. This was unheard of in that day. It was his responsibility. It was his family's responsibility to take care of Tamar, and he sends her away. This is a sentence worse than death. For a woman who had no social status, no person to take care of her, Judah just says, good luck, and kicks her out the door. Judah was a wicked man. We can have a tendency to think of Judah as a good guy. The reason we can think of that is because of his um, offspring, his descendant, David, King David, the man after God's own heart. We can think of Judah as a relatively good guy because of Jesus, obviously the Messiah. We, We see in the book of Revelation that the Jesus is referred to as the Lion of Judah. So we can think of, uh, well, Judah's probably a pretty good guy. But that's not at all the case here. In fact, the text gets worse before it gets better. Let's pick up in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah for his sheep shearers, uh, to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Aneum, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give to you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on her garments of widowhood. So time passes here. As time passes, a few years uh, have passed, most likely, because now Shelah is old enough for marriage. Judah's wife 
dies. And after grieving for her for a season, it's time for him to head to work. And so he heads off to check on his sheep shearers. And there were large gatherings uh, of shepherds that would come together once a year to shear their sheep. And this is just giant festival. These shepherds would gather from around the area. They'd spend an entire week together shearing their sheep. And, and I just want you to picture this. This is a bunch of men with loose morals who are hanging out for a week straight without their wives and who have just recently come into some money. They're wanting to blow off their steam from a long year of work and just uh, honestly think of Florida during spring break. Alcohol, debauchery, it's quite common in these kind of situations. And this is where Judah's headed. And somehow word makes it to Tamar, and so she springs into action. And the speed that she acts shows us she's formulated a plan here. She disguises herself. She gets ready to intercept Judah at Aeneum, which, by the way, happens to mean the place of seeing, which is kind kind of ironic here. What's her plan? Well, the one thing that she wants is what Judah refused to give her, and that is justice. This is a woman who has no rights and no security, no future without children. And so she is seeking those things. Of course, what she does, highly questionable ethically. We're not at all trying to say what, Ju- uh, what Tamar does here is right. But in her situation, she looked at the situation and said, I have no other option here. We're not justifying what she did. We're just explaining what she did here. So Tamar knows that Judah is a womanizer knows that Judah is a man who couldn't control his desires. And, and this is very apparent when we see uh, Judah walking down the road. He sees Tamar, and the first thing that he says to her without provocation is that he wants to be with her. Without provocation. And so Judah goes and asks, and Tamar plays the part. She says, well, what will you give me? And Judah says, I'll give you a young goat, which was apparently a relatively generous offer for those days. But the goat was back at home. And so she says, well, give me some collateral. And this man, so consumed with his passion, is at a point in his life where he's so impatient, he can't wait, that he turns over the most precious things to him in that day and age. It says the, the text tells us that he turns over his signet, he turns over his cord, and he turns over his staff. What are those things? Well, first, let's look at the first two, signet and cord. Every person of importance in those days would carry a unique seal to them. This is something that was very common before signatures were around. These seals were used to seal any sort of document to show that person's approval. In in other words, it was a signature. This is the equivalent of a signature, but even more than that, it's it's like a, a signature plus a social security card plus a passport all combined into one. And these signets would be worn on cords around your neck so you could carry it with you at all times. And Judah, foolishly, burning with passion, turns over his entire identity to this woman without hesitation. That's the first thing Judah turns over. Second thing is he turns over his staff. Now, what does a staff symbolize here? Apparently, the staff was a sign of Judah's prominence in the family. Judah had walked away from his family 20 years earlier, and yet he decided that he was going to hold on to his rights as the heir of the family. Now, he was the fourth of the the family, but the three older brothers were disqualified for one reason or another. And so Judah now is the heir to Jacob's family. He has all the privileges and the wealth of the firstborn, and inexplicably, Judah turns it over 
to this woman. Again, just look at the comparison here between Judah and Esau. This is a man who trades away something priceless for temporary satisfaction. He trades away his identity, and he trades away his right to the promise of God for a few minutes with an unknown woman. Judah is unbelievably foolish here. Things get far worse before they get better. We see that coming up in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the colt prostitute who was at Aeneum at the roadside? And they said, no colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, young goat, and you did not find her. So a few days pass, and, and Judah sends his friend Hiram out to find this woman. Notice that Judah, he's too sophisticated to do it himself, and so he sends out his buddy. But Tamar is gone. What's more than that, no one has ever heard of this woman at that location. And so Judah is embarrassed, as, as he well should be. He's been conned out of his identity. He's been conned out of his inheritance by a street woman. And Judah recognizes if word gets out, if people begin to hear about this, I'm going to be laughed out of the area. And he probably would have been. And so Judah, apparently he just decided that he's going to become moral and righteous right now in this moment. He decides to cover it up. He doesn't want anyone to know what's happened. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 24, three months later. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Three months pass. He finds out Tamar's pregnant. And this is a man who's been looking to, uh, for opportunities to get rid of her for years. And now he jumps at the chance that it's finally presented itself. Notice that he doesn't just want to put her to death for adultery. The death sentence in those days would have been just stoning her to death. This is more excessive. This isn't just justice. He wants to burn her alive. He wants to see her pay. He wants to make her experience pain. Shocking hypocrisy. Shocking hypocrisy from this man. Virtually at every turn, he has exposed himself to be wicked and evil. And now he is claiming he wants justice, but he really just wants to be rid of Tamar. Just a shocking, ugly man. This is a man who refuses Tamar justice and now wants and demands justice. This is a man who delights in immorality and now is calling her out for her immorality. He is disgusting in virtually every way. And the fact that he can't see it makes it even worse. Just a pause. Check our own spirits. How often are we like Judah. How often are we like Judah? Now, in one sense, I'd venture a guess and say we're not at all like Judah. Very few people in the history of humanity have ever been as bad as Judah here. But in another sense, we are a lot more like Judah than we would like to admit. Jesus says this in the Gospels, 
Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus reminds us in this text what's happening with Judah should offend us to the point that nothing should offend us more than our own sin. Nothing should be more apparent to us, more obvious to us than our own sin. But the sad truth is we are so often like Judah. We have such an easy time pointing out the wickedness of others and ignoring our own. So I just pray and hope that we can learn from Judah's example here. Let's praise God. Judah learned from his experience. And that's how the story ends. Pick up in verse 25. We'll read the rest of the chapter. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Tamar has been sentenced to death, and she's on her way to the stake where she's going to be burned alive by her wicked father-in-law. And on her way there, her father-in-law's eyes finally open. His eyes open because she sends the missing staff and the missing signet. And it's that moment, somewhere in between verses 25 and 26, the world just slows down to a screeching halt for Judah. And here in these verses, his eyes are finally opened. His heart is finally softened. And his cold attitude that he has toward Tamar has finally warmed. Why? What has caused this in Judah's life? Honestly, Judah finally saw his sin. Judah finally sees his sin. And everything that he does and says is a response to this heart change. When he says, she is more righteous than I, he's saying that there's this massive change that's happened in my heart. I finally understand what I've been doing wrong, how wicked I've been in God's sight, in your sight, and I was wrong. All of this takes place at the revelation of his sin. But it's not just a revelation to Judah. It's a revelation to everyone else as well. The whole world can see Judah's sin at this moment. Judah cannot find a place to hide. And so he simply says, I was wrong. I was wrong to not give you Shayla. He wants to hide his sin for the fear of embarrassment just a few verses earlier. And here... His sin is exposed for everyone to see. He's utterly embarrassed. But it's more than just this sin. It's more just just the sin uh, of mistreating Tamar, of his illicit relationship with her. Other people wouldn't have known about his running from God. Other people wouldn't have known about his injustices in the past. 
They wouldn't have known about his mistreatment of his brothers, of his brother decades earlier, but Judah would have. All of that comes to mind in this moment. It's in this moment of public humiliation that Judah is finally able to move forward. We finally see this lasting change in Judah. Genesis 37, remember, which takes place right before this chapter. Judah is a man who sells his brother into slavery. Genesis 39, 40, 41, 42 all tell us of Joseph's experience during these 20 years that chapter 38 is taking. And so chronologically, the experience here, the the end of Genesis 38 picks up right where Genesis 43 begins. What we see in Genesis 43 is this man no longer is willing to sell his brother into slavery, but he offers himself up for slavery to save his brother. Judah is transformed. And he's transformed by the painful, nasty, humiliating business of his sin being exposed in a very public way. Friends, God often works that way. God often works that way because God is serious about his people's repentance. And he is so serious that he will do whatever it takes to bring transformation, including exposing sin publicly. This is one of the greatest things that could have happened to Judah. And yet it was one of the most painful things as well. That's why this passage is a warning. It's a warning because if you are God's child and you're wandering away from him, be very, very, very careful. Because God is committed to you. He's committed to your spiritual growth. He's focused on your repentance. He's focused on your humility. Years ago, I was at a conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and one of the things that a speaker said just stuck with me. They were talking about the importance of repentance, the importance of humility in our lives, and they simply said this, profound. They said, get on your knees, or God may bring you to your knees. Get on your knees, or God may bring you to your knees. Be quick to repent, be quick to humble yourself, or God may just humiliate you. And God will do that because he loves you. He loves you so much. He cares about you so much. He's going to do anything to get your attention, including let the whole world see your sin. God takes his holiness seriously. He says, I'm not going to be mocked. He's not going to be slandered by our sin. And so we must be careful if we are going to ignore his calling, his conviction, his commands for too long in our lives. Beware. But at the same time, as this passage is a warning, it's also a hope. One author says it this way, of this you can be sure, whatever sin God reveals by his grace, he will forgive by that very same grace. It is an act of grace that God reveals our sin, that God exposes our sin publicly so the world can see it. And it's the exact same way that God will forgive us with that exact same grace. If God can get through to Judah, he can certainly get through to you. He can certainly get through to me. He can certainly get through to your spouse, to your child, 
those who are far from God? If God can use people like Judah, he can certainly use you. He can certainly use me. He can certainly use your spouse, your child, those who are far from God. And that's how this chapter ends. This chapter ends by looking forward to the future. Looks forward to God's commitment to Judah being fulfilled even when Judah wasn't committed to God because he gives Judah offspring. One day, Judah will be the father of the nation of Israel thanks to God's commitment to him. And even more important than that is in his unfathomable grace, God gives Judah the the right, the privilege of being the forerunner of the Messiah, of being the ancestor of Jesus. Jesus, the one that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 to end the curse of sin as a descendant of Judah and Tamar. God is fully committed to his people's repentance and their transformation. And so if you're, a, if you're a Christian this morning, know this, rejoice in this. God is committed to you. No matter what, God is committed to you. So let us respond in kind. Let us respond in kind. Let us respond with repentance of our hidden sin before it is exposed. Because we worship a God who is gracious We worship a God who is merciful, who is compassionate, who is long-suffering in his love to wicked sinners like Judah and to wayward sinners like us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace that is so evident in the life of Judah. Thank you for grace that transforms us through painful circumstances, through embarrassing circumstances, through humiliating circumstances. God, I pray that we would take the life of Judah as a warning. That we wouldn't let our sin fester for too long. But that we would be quick to repent that we would be quick to honor you with repentance and living in a way that glorifies you. God, give us the strength to do that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.